Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name's Guy Hanson. I'm Director of Exhibitions here at the National Library of Australia, and it's my great pleasure here to be here today to uh, introduce this event. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and thank their elders and past and present for caring for the land we're now privileged to call home. Today's talk is the second event presented in partnership with um, the Asia Society as part of our public programming for the Celestial Empire Life in China exhibition. Uh, this partnership has really worked well for the library because one of its main aims is to help build um, a better understanding of China and its history. Um, and that's really one of the reasons why we did the exhibition downstairs, Celestial Empire, is it, it is to introduce some very important history and cultural information about China to a broad Australian audience. And I, I think in this goal, we share a lot with the Asia Society in terms of some of the goals they have in um, doing public programming. So, uh, of course, Celestial Empire um, would not have been possible without the support of a whole lot of people. First and foremost is the National Library of China, who um, provided us with uh, really incredible access to their collections, um, allowed us to go over to China and, and review the material, um, view things and actually make a selection of material which we thought would really be of interest uh, to people in Australia and, and we really are thankful to the National Library of China for, uh, for doing that. And of course we've had a, a range of other um, partners um, both in the public and private sectors. Um, Shell in Australia, The Seven Network, Wonder One, Optus, Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, TfE Hotels and uh, the ANU's China in the World Centre and the Asian Society, of course, have all been very helpful in presenting um, this exhibition. And the Commonwealth Government has been um, very helpful with coming up with the, the cash which we needed um, from the uh, National Collecting Institutions Touring Outreach Program. So a major grant from the Commonwealth helped made this possible, as well as um, other grants from the ACT Government as well. Um, so all of this has helped us present um, the Celestial Empire exhibition and associated public programs. In today's presentation, we're going to hear from Jason Yatsen Lee, um, who's going to talk about China's different personalities to help explain uh, how we can better understand China. Um, Jason is one of Australia's leading and most innovative corporate advisors with over 20 years' experience in law, corporate finance, finance and general management and politics in Australia, China, the USA and Europe. He's founder of and chairman of, uh, of the Yatsen Group, an investment and advisory organisation with interest in China. Jason's also worked for the UN um, and is the former vice chair of the Australia-China Chamber of Commerce in Beijing. Um, in 2009, he was appointed a young global leader by the World Economics Forum in Davos and currently serves on the World Economics Forum's Global Agenda Council for China. So, uh, as you can see, he's got a very impressive CV and I think it goes on much longer and I could tell you more, but I think we'll move into the formal part of the proceedings. So to get um, the ball rolling, I'd first like to ask um, Jet Radley from uh, the um, Asia Society to say a few words before we hear from Jason. Thanks, Guy. Um, just very quickly, a warm welcome to you all. I just wanted to say a few words about the Asia Society. So we are Australia's leading centre for engagement with Asia and we were established in 1997. So Asia Society aims to promote greater understanding between Australia and Asia in areas of business, policy, culture and education. 
Um, we're so pleased to be here today and to be able to support the wonderful work that the library's been doing with the exhibition. I was privileged to walk through it this morning with uh, Dr. Nathan Woolley, the curator. Uh, and I would just like to welcome Jason up to the stage. Thank you very much. That's my clicker. Thank you very much, Ted. And um, thank you to the Asia Society and the National Library for having uh, me here. And congratulations for putting on such a wonderful um, exhibition. It really provides really nice context for this conversation that I'd like to have with you today about China. Um, can everybody hear me okay? If I, if I wandered around a bit at the back, it's all okay? If I didn't use the mic, that's fine? Okay. Um, it's always a little bit hard talking um, about China to, to, to audiences because you're never entirely sure what level of knowledge uh, people have. So I just wanted to get a sense from you guys just how much you know. Is there anybody who is a China expert here like from, from the ANU? Okay. And are there people who know very little traveled there, but really, really, okay, so a few people. Okay, so this is what makes these things <laughs> sort of difficult. So I, I ask for uh, your indulgence. For those who know a lot, please indulge us on, on some of the beginner stuff. And those who know uh, relatively little, please indulge us on if we, if we deep dive into, uh, into some stuff. All of that said, I'm not a China scholar. Um, I come at this more from a commercial perspective as a practitioner and as an Australian of, of, um, of Chinese lived in China for, uh, for a very long time. Um, maybe to kick off with, um, I was part of this thing called Eisenhower Fellowships um, uh, a while ago, uh, which is run by the United States government. It's an opportunity for people around the world to go to the US and travel around and, um, and understand that country a bit better. And the chairman of Eisenhower Fellowships at the time was Dr. Henry Kissinger. And at the end of this program, it was a two-month program, we were all given our awards certificates by, by Dr. Kissinger, and there was an award ceremony. And we were all there, and we were announced uh, not by name, but by country. And because I was representing Australia, I was the first cab off the rank. So the, the moderator stood up there and, and went, Australia. So I stood up, and I was walking towards Dr. Kissinger on the stage, and he looked at me. And then he looked back at the MC like there'd been a stuff-up. Um, and, then, and then when he realised what was going on, and I was going up and I was shaking his hand, he had this sort of sly smile on his face. And, he, and he, as he was shaking my hand, he whispered to me, he said, so, the Chinese are taking over Australia too, aren't they? <laughs> so, so if we start there, many of you will be familiar with this particular, with this particular cartoon. Um, and it dates from the Qing Dynasty. Uh, the Qing Dynasty is seen from, from, from Australia. And what struck me, what, the reason I wanted to start here um, is if you take some of these things, um, somebody who will remain unnamed uh, remarked to me uh, this morning, you know, what, what, what is, is this a CFMEU ad? Uh, a, a, a number of these themes continue uh, now. Uh, cheap labour and Chinese people coming here and purchasing Australian real estate and driving up the prices. The casino that is the Chinese uh, share market. Um, uh, corruption and bribery in terms of um, overseas transactions and deals. A number of these issues persist um, in the broader Australian debate uh, nowadays. 
I had a conversation with the director of probably Australia's largest tourism company um, a while ago, and and I asked I asked her, what do you make of Chinese tourism? And she said, look, it's it's a it's a perplexing thing. Of course, we want the Chinese to come, and if you look at this from a commercial perspective, you see opportunity. You can sell inflatable rubber rings to the Chinese. You can sell ice cream to the Chinese. You can sell bathing suits to the Chinese. But she said, we're careful. We don't want too many to descend on our attractions all at the, you know, all at the same time because it may affect the character um, of those attractions for, for, for other people. And so here is the here is the the, the, the context for maybe Australia's relationship with China right now. We want the commercial opportunities that China offers us, um, but we are hesitant or reluctant or unsure, maybe a little bit suspicious about what it may mean. Um, what will the character, how will China change us, particularly given its scale and its nature um, as a country? This is the Goldman Sachs view of the world. It's from a while ago, from 2007, so even before the, the first financial crisis. But this was the Goldman Sachs view of the world in 2015. And what I think is remarkable about this slide is, I mean, a number of things. It, it, but what, what's really interesting here is um, not so much that China is ahead, um, according to this Goldman Sachs analysis. And it has to be tempered now with the new normal of Chinese economic growth, with the revival of American innovation. Um, but whether or not this scenario comes to pass, what, what, was, what really struck me was the, the extent to which um, China was, was the largest economy. What's also interesting is how other Asian countries feature here, um, India, Indonesia, Japan, Korea, um, etc. Um, so, you know, partly an understanding of this is where population um, and size of GDP realigns after the Industrial Revolution that, revolution that put that out of kilter. Really, this is the realignment of population size um, and, and, and economic clout. But if you take this as a, as a starting point and you ask yourself, even if China gets to a proportion of that amount of economic clout, what does this mean for the world as we understand it? What does this mean for how we conduct our business? What does this mean for um, how we conduct our lives? Um, what does this mean militarily um, and global strategic issues? What does this mean culturally in terms of the language that we are used to, that we are used to um, speaking? And lastly, um, where's Australia on this, uh, on, on, on this, on this chart? Um, and so we ask ourselves, are we having the right debates? What is the source of Australia's future prosperity? You know, and are we really thinking about this in the right way? Are we building the right um, industries, the right capacities, and importantly, the right mindsets to enable ourselves to continue to be prosperous as we go towards 2050? But what is clear is China does represent a tremendous opportunity. Um, and are we prepared as a country do we have the right mindset of the country to really take advantage of that? Um, let's use that as a context now 
um, to launch into the five personalities. If we try to understand China a little bit better, and that is important, given the role that China must play for our national future, when you look at China, a lot is at face value, at first blush, very contradictory. Take the um, South China Sea. China obviously um, wants primacy, at least in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, so, logically speaking, China would want its neighbours um, to be within its sphere of influence. Wants to be friendly with those neighbours and wants the United States, wants to be a foil to the United States, to take that position from the United States. And yet, if you follow the goings-on in the South China Sea, many would regard China as taking actions that are antagonistic that are unilateral, that are aggressive, and so driving those names. In the fourth plenum um, of, the, um, of the Communist Party, of the 18th um, Party Congress, um, a, a, a different take on what we would understand as the, rule, as the rule of law was held up as one of the central tenets in terms of China's reform agenda, uh, increasing the independence of the judiciary, improving or increasing the role that, that the law plays in Chinese society. And yet, you've probably read how China has recently rounded up um, human rights activists and human rights lawyers. And lastly, you would have seen that innovation in terms of the 13th five-year plan, innovation has been held up as one of the central tenets um, of China's future prosperity and economic growth in the future. And all over you see Alibaba and Tencent investing billions of dollars, um, some $3 billion so far in the last few years in startups in Silicon Valley. And yet, I think the consensus view is that there has been a winding back of internet freedoms um, in China recently. How do we understand these contradictions um, in China and, and what is going on? What we've tried to do with the five personalities is, and it's not a sophisticated tool, but we offer it as a, some sort of a framework to help us understand some of these uh, contradictions that we might see in China. And the five personalities, they're not mutually exclusive. You'll see, for any complex person, different personality types will come forward in different situations. Um, if you understand China as a very complex beast, there'll be certain decision makers or certain government departments or certain parts of China that may exhibit one personality more than the other. And in any certain situation, there may be multiple layers of different personalities coming out at the same time. So let's dive into these personalities and what they may mean. The first I've called here the self-sufficient civilization. It might as well be called the Celestial Empire. And this finds its roots back to the thousands and thousands of years of history um, that, that China has had. Um, but I wanted to make one point. I mean, the, the notion of being Chinese, um, I think of myself, I don't regard myself as Chinese in the sense that I'm not a citizen of the People's Republic of China that was founded over 60 years ago. I do regard myself as Chinese in a civilizational sense, is part of the broader Chinese um, civilization. And 
this is something, um, having been born in Australia and having grown up in Australia, this is something of, of interest to me. It affected me as a, you know, as a youngster growing up, but something I really only understood in having moved to China and having lived in China for 10 years with, with my family just on, a, just on a decade ago. We, my sister and I, we knew from a young age, you know, just from, as many of you, having come from many different cultures, you get things from your family. Um, you know, you, you get pieces of whatever background you're from, from, from your family and, your, and the environment in which you grew up. And similarly to us, we, when we were growing up, we, we noticed things were different. We would always take off our shoes um, when we entered the house. We would always shower, not in the morning, but we shower at night. We would never drink cold water. Um, we'd always drink hot water. Um, Dad would always get into a great big argument after the payment came to dinner about who would, who would pay the bill. Um, my mother, uh, one of whose good friends is in the audience today, would take um, thrift or the ability to extract value from a particular situation, such as a buffet, to, to tremendous extremes. Um, and, and this, to my sister and I, we just thought this was mum being. Do you remember the um, at Pizza Hut, how the salad bar, how it was an unlimited salad bar, and you could go, you know, but you could only, but you could only go, you could only have what you could fit into your bowl um, at the time. And my mum had perfected how to put as much salad into that bowl as, as possible, or so we thought, until we moved back to China, and we found that this was actually a national sport. And there's actually there's an instruction booklet on, on how to do this. And I thought I'd show this to you because I found it, I found it very uh, amusing. This, this is what we found on the, on the internet. So essentially, you take the Pizza Hut salad bowl and you fill the base with a heavy foundation. Um, and, then, and then you create the, the, the superstructure sort of around it. You create the, you know, the platform uh, to broaden the width of the bowl and you have to weigh that down for stability with, you know, with the pineapple, with the, with the pineapple pieces. And then on top of that, you know, you, you, you add your, your, your various layers of things and, and, and up the <laughs> Going back to the, um, going back to the, um, the self-sufficient um, civilization. I mean, this is, this is the view of China, that, that China is unique and it's exceptionalist, um, China does not accept um, norms from any other place, including human rights norms, because China is the source of its own norms. China is the final arbiter of its own history. Um, and it ties into what you may have read about you know, the, the China dream, or the revitalization um, of China. What's happening now is really just the return of China to its natural uh, place in history, and never again will China allow itself to be humiliated and, and bullied um, by, by other people. Let's move to the, um, to the, to the second personality now, um, which, which we've called so Sovereign Survivor. So we started with the civilizational aspect of China. Now, going back to the other, the other bit, the People's Republic of China, what this personality said is that China is really the last remaining communist superpower. So China started as a patron of the Soviet Union, but 
with the collapse of communism, the Eastern Bloc, etc. It's almost as if the, the, the patron has, has died, um, but the client um, has, has taken its place. And there is some, some hawks in China who will often uh, think about Russia. It's time that Russia stepped away from Eurasia now and really let, let China take the, um, uh, take the reign there. Um, if, you, if you look at China's view of its own national interest, I mean, this is the consensus view about how China would view its, its, its national interest, with political stability up the top. And then beneath that, you have sovereign security, ter territorial integrity, um, and of course, sustainable economy doesn't develop So, you can see consistency here between, you know, the first two. Anyway. But if you look at these two here, um, and the first and the third, often they come into uh, conflict. And I think, um, for those who study China, this is the central. I mean, this is really the central tension. This is from the conference board. This is a central tension that I think really, um, that, that, that's really sort of defining or will continue to define China for the foreseeable future. Um, can, you, can you be politically conservative and economically liberal at the same time? What is this tension between the party on the one hand, on the market, and the market in, uh, on the other? And, and, and the pull between those two forces and how they are resolved um, really is an interesting prism to understand some of the internal, um, some of the internal goings on uh, in China. And so, I mean, interesting from a popular culture perspective, how these, you know, how these things play out, and where is that line that the government, the Chinese government, is comfortable with? You know, there is, whereas there is a, a, a master chef. Um, you know, in China, there's a, there's a voice in China, same format, tremendously popular, but clearly there will never be, you know, <laughs> a, a, a Tony Jones equivalent. The area where, uh, personally, I mean, we're, we're heavily invested in this area, but I find very interesting in terms of this party market divide is in the internet, um, in the internet space. And again, I say, one of the big, big tenets big centerpieces of the of the 13 five-year plan is this notion of innovation. This innovation is, is being held out to be big new driver of Chinese economic growth and, and prosperity. And certainly if you look at some of these internet co companies, Alibaba, Tencent and Baidu, they're up there. Um, significant companies um, in terms of market cap um, and in terms of influence. And as I said earlier on, they're investing heavily um, in startups, not just within China, but also uh, outside, of, outside of China. Yet, at the same time as we've mentioned before, the consensus view is that there has been a tightening um, of internet freedom, you know, coinciding with a feeling that there has been a reversion back to much more conservative um, political um, ideals. And so we ask, just as China is becoming more economically powerful, it seems to be becoming more politically conservative and more communist. And how does this, how does this play out? Certainly, the, the government in China is concerned about free-reigning social media, simply because it's so fast and it's so democratic um, in many ways. Every person, just as it is here, I, I was at um, 
Dubbo Zoo, Western Plains Zoo, where one of the zookeepers was taking us around the rhinoceros exhibition. Um, and he was an evangelist about rhino, just absolutely terrible. Like, this, this poaching of, of rhinoceros and, and, and the, the poaching for, the, for their rhino horns. And, and went out and said, right, China's responsible for this. And because there's no internet, there's no internet in China, nobody knows about this issue of, of, of rhino horns. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, not only is there the internet in China, there is actually strong, robust democratic debate. What we would understand in Australia is, is uh, democratic debate on the Chinese internet. This picture, it's from a few years ago, was um, of a uh, press conference uh, that was held um, after a anti-corruption official actually was found uh, stabbed uh, 11 times with his throat cut uh, in, his, in his office um, in Hernan province, I think. And after an official investigation, it was announced that uh, his death was a suicide. <laughs> and then, you know, there was all sorts of commotion that, that, that erupted, and, and this is his family at that press conference. And this is the translated version of, of some of the comments that, that would come out. So very robust commentary, very, very robust commentary on, on online social media and those of you who follow the news very recently there was a there was a man who died in police custody um, just just about a week ago um, and you know again there was a story about how this may have happened that he was visiting a house of ill repute and various explanations given and again the online citizenry has has been uh, has been nothing Just as negative things are reported um, in Chinese social media, so netizens want to hold up what they would aspire to in terms of government leadership. Um, this is interesting. This is Gary Lott, the former um, United States ambassador to China. And this picture of him um, was very, very popular um, in the... Twittersphere at the time. Does anyone know? Does anyone follow this? Does anyone know why that that became so popular? Exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, people couldn't understand. I mean, this was—he was a former commerce secretary, and he's carrying his own knapsack, carrying his own backpack. And similarly, President Obama coming down from Air Force One. This this picture went 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 all over the place in the Chinese internet as well. Um, anyone know why? He's holding his own umbrella. Unbelievable. <laughs> and, and so Chinese citizens online um, are very robust in terms of voicing um, their views and their aspirations of how they would want their leaders to, to behave. And so how does the Chinese government respond to this? These, these, these forces. We want innovation. We want our Chinese internet giants to go over, go out and conquer the world. Um, but at the same time, we're not comfortable. How do we, how do we control or how do we manage the internet um, in China? Uh, this is a screenshot from WeChat. I'm sure you've all heard of heard of, of, of WeChat. What is interesting here is this is essentially an ecosystem 
And WeChat's recently announced that you can't, it's restricting your ability to leave the WeChat platform and click into other platforms. And it's made us in the company think that um, we're invested in a number of things to do with WeChat and, and it, some of these things worry us. But it's made us think more broadly about when you have large ecosystems underneath big companies such as an Alibaba ecosystem and a Tencent ecosystem, it actually makes the system a lot easier to control uh, from a governmental perspective rather than having millions and millions of startups going and doing, um, and doing different things. Let's move now to the third um, personality and we've called this the leader of the developing world. We can go through these a little bit quickly because they're, they're, um, they probably have um, less to them. Um, this is the personality that says China, sees China taking um, a leadership role in terms of developing nations. You saw this very clearly um, in the Copenhagen climate talks, um, where China basically said, put the side of developing nations, and together to the developed nations said, look, okay, you guys had your free run in terms of uh, pollution, heavy economic development. If you want us not to do that, then at the very least, we expect technology assistance and, and financial you also see this in, in China's, I guess, investments uh, in developing countries, building infrastructure, uh, building markets, with less of the focus on democratic institutions, human rights, the sorts of things that Western investors may be more interested um, in, um, in, in terms of as, as quid pro quos A related um, personality is, I guess, the last man standing. Um, President Obama went to Africa last year, and I thought it was very interesting. It was almost as though the United States was selling itself as a better partner. I remember Obama saying, you know, America will make a better partner um, for Africa. He was obviously uh, referring to the Chinese and the English and the Chinese. Um, but Interestingly, really, the West hasn't really covered itself in glory um, up until recently. If you think of the global financial crisis, the revolving door of prime ministers in Italy and Japan, the sort of the, the, the Europe grinding to a halt of its debt crisis, particularly in Greece, uh, legislative gridlock in the, in the United States. And so this personality really sees China as saying, look, the West has really lost its plot. And our particular brand of single-state authoritarian market-driven um, capitalism is a better system, is a, is a better model. And this is what some people call the Beijing Consensus after that book that was written. Um, now, this has subsided a little bit recently with the revival of the American economy. And Europe didn't go to pieces. And now the Chinese economy is slowing down. Um, but the sentiment and the personality um, persists. The final personality I'd like to put to you is what we've called the Herald of the High Frontier. Now, this is the positive view of China. Remember that the Golden Sachs chart where China was that far ahead? This is the personality of China that says China will be a responsible global leader. It will provide international public to the global community. And you see this behavior, um, for instance, in the Paris talks, uh, 
uh, last year where China came out and said, right, we think that all countries should revisit every five years their commitment to reducing greenhouse gas uh, emissions. Made Australia look, look bad. We see it in terms of China's activities in Antarctica and the building of scientific bases, etc. Always tinged with something else, and so I say these personalities overlap. I'm sure China's not building bases in Antarctica purely to provide international public, uh, public goods. Similarly, China will try to explain its activities in the South China Sea through this rubric. It's not doing it. Um, some may call it spin. Um, it's not doing it primarily to um, strengthen its claims, its territorial claims there. It's doing it to provide security of freedom of navigation, to, to, to guard passing vessels against piracy, um, etc. And certainly, um, China had helped supervise the export of chemical weapons from Syria, provided supplies to um, citizens of the Maldives when they were beset by um, disaster, etc. And so, this particular personality is the very positive, the responsible stakeholder, the global leader, the responsible global leader view um, of China that China would, would put forward. What I'd like to do now is just look at a couple of case studies um, of how we might apply some of these, these, this personality sort of framework in understanding some of the some of the things, some of the more topical issues that are going on in China. Um, Cross-border e-commerce. Um, I don't know how many of you have been following this debate recently. It's been a it's been a big debate in terms of in terms of um, the Chinese economy and its relationship, its impact on Australia. Essentially, um, what cross-border e-commerce has been, China has traditionally jealously guarded its borders. The market is so big and has historically always traded market access for something. The tributary system, you had to come and provide tributes in order to gain market access to Chinese borders in this tremendously valuable uh, market. Before this, in order to get goods into China, unless you smuggled them in, um, you had to infant formula drugs and medications, supplement products. You had to import them, and there were very, very strict regulations. Black Balls and Swiss, in order to import their products in, they had to register every SKU, every product had to go through probably about two to three years of testing, and it cost about 300000 to half a million dollars per SKU, per product, in order before they could be imported en masse into China. Then suddenly, after some experimentation, the Chinese launched cross-border e-commerce. Um, what cross-border e-commerce? Uh, this is just the size of the, uh, size of the price. The, the Chinese e-commerce market is about one and a half times the size of the US's. Some people understand this, but it is a tremendously large, dynamic, and robust um, e-commerce market um, in, in China. What cross-border e-commerce did was basically said to foreign companies, you can sell your products in China, you don't have to go through all this testing and all these regulations, provided you ship it first to a bonded warehouse, a customs warehouse in China, and then if a Chinese consumer orders something online, goes to the website, orders something, and it's only for personal use, you can't import lots of it and on sell it, it's only for your own personal use, um, you, can, you can buy those products, the companies can send them in without having to go through all the rigorous approval process um, that, that regular import. Now this was revolutionary. 
This goes to this issue of trust um, in, in Chinese society. Um, how many of you have heard of the, the case of the Nanjing Judge and the, and the Good Samaritan, this particular issue um, in China? Are you familiar with it? So this is, this is one of the, the really you know, things that you wrestle with. And often in the street in China, if you see somebody fall down, if you see an older person fall down, generally speaking, um, you won't see many people rushing to their aid. And it's not because, um, well, it's not because of anything. The main reason why people are afraid of liability. And the way this came about was there was a case a while ago where a, an elderly person fell, a young person came to assist them, and was accused by the elderly person of having pushed them down in the first place. And there was a judge that ruled in favour of the elderly person, saying no normal person would have gone to assist unless they had a guilty conscience. And so awarded, awarded compensation to the elderly person. And this was published. And it outraged you know, everybody. And it started this mentality that you know, if you go to assist, you're only bringing trouble on yourself because you could be accused uh, of something. This is a similar case where, again, this young person, this student here, was similarly accused of knocking down the older person. It's lucky for the student there was a security camera that caught actually what happened um, there. So there was evidence um, in, this, in, in this particular case. This notion of trust and the lack of trust in Chinese society, personally, I think is, is one of the biggest issues that, that, that China wrestles with. And there's no stronger example of this, probably than the infant formula um, scandal in 2008. Six babies died, about 50,000 were sent to hospital about 300,000 were made sick. And, and this, if, if, you, if you took this as a metaphor for trust um, in the goods that you were buying, what you're feeding your newborn baby, you can't get a more powerful or a more visceral example of this. And the link to Australia, this is why our supermarket shelves are getting cleaned out and the infant formula being sent back up to charge. This is what, this is what drives this behaviour. And so cross-border e-commerce, this is why the government needed to allow this because people just not trust Chinese-made product. They wanted foreign product. They wanted particularly Australian product because it was considered at least to be healthy and safe. You wouldn't hurt your baby in doing it. This is a shot from Taobao, um, which is the Chinese sort of eBay. Um, and you can see how it's done here, um, for those of you who haven't seen this before. So this is the price, about 200, um, about 200 RMB. So if you divide that by five, it's about $40 per can of Bellamy's organic infant formula. If you went to Coles or Woolies, this would be about $20 um, here. So what is happening is a lot of Chinese people, maybe some of you in the audience who would do this, your friends and family or people, and you just go and buy it from the supermarket, you buy it from Chemist Warehouse, and you ship it up there. And a lot of money is made. Um, we, had, we actually had somebody resign from our company because she said she was, could make more money doing this um, than, than working for us. And, and the figures say at least half of infant formula that's sold in Australia was sold through these channels um, heading, up, heading up to China. Central to all of this, again, is this notion of trust. So these are, this is how advertisements for the products that are sent from Australia are done. People want to see, they don't want to necessarily buy them from big anonymous platforms. They want to see that the person who's shipping them is in the store, it's 
it's somewhere in Canberra or in, in Australia somewhere. This is the receipt here that, you know, this is then going to the store here in Canberra and actually buying it. And it's considered to be the safest way to buy this because if you were to buy this from one of the big Alibaba um, uh, platforms or the, or, the, or the big online retailers, how could you really know that the stuff really came from Australia rather than being packed somewhere in, in, in China and sold to you. And so this personal shopping aspect um, has been quite a remarkable phenomenon going on. Here then is the, is the receipt. You're showing your customer that you actually bought this and this is the receipt that you used to buy it. So it really came. And so what Chinese mothers want is they want precisely the product that Australian mums will be giving their they want it to come from our supermarket shelves because it's the best way to know that it's safe. It's, it's okay. I can, I, can feed my, I can feed my child. This is, these are some screenshots from a chemist's warehouse in Hurstville in, in Sydney. Um, as for Swiss products. And there was, a, there, was a, there was a run on Swiss products, you know, the supplements products, um, where there were shortages, basically product shortages. And somebody sent a WeChat message out saying that there was a delivery coming into this particular chemist warehouse that day and some 500 people descended on this, uh, on this, on this place to grab these products, not so much for their personal consumption but to ship them up the chain. This is Jessica's suitcase, um, Jessica Rudd's uh, platform, um, Kevin Rudd's daughter, who's a good friend of ours. She's done something very, very smart where she, she lived in, in China um, we were there about the same time that she was. And she started an online business, which is very, very smart, where she found every time she came back to Australia, she has a number of uh, young children, every time she came back to Australia, <coughs> she would pack her suitcase uh, with products, with Australian products that she'd bring back that she couldn't get in China. So she's called this online platform Jessica Suitcase. And so she offers these products to other Chinese mums who want to buy the same safe, reliable, healthy, organic product that she feeds um, her kids. So all this goes back to notion of authenticity um, and trust in terms of the Chinese marketplace. Now, let's relate this back to the five personalities. And what does this mean from a policy perspective? Is it conceivable that the self-sufficient civilization would find it acceptable that it cannot feed its own people or that its food supply is not trusted by its own people? Is this an acceptable state of affairs? And what does this say for the future policy development in this area? We've recently, as a company, been investing a lot in these sorts of Australian food businesses. Are we stupid in doing that? In other words, is it conceivable that the Chinese government, sooner or later, really what they want to do is build up their domestic industry and they will shut the gates at some stage in the future because it is inconceivable that the self-sufficient civilization or that the sovereign survival would allow a infraction on its sovereignty. Because trade is really as much about sovereignty as, as anything else. If you allow the foreign products in with little control, little taxing at the border, is that an infraction on China's uh, sovereignty? What about the herald of the high frontier or the last person standing, the last man standing? For Australia, is the United States, our market is small, if we want to grow our companies, where do we look? You know, is it always about the United States and Europe? 
in terms of where our companies can grow? Or is China really just making its market available and opening its market so that our companies, our world-class companies and our small domestic home market can have a massive market in which to become uh, global leaders? What international public goods does uh, open access to a Chinese consumer market um, provide? Just in, in terms of time, I'm not going to go into one belt, one road um, very much. This is essentially, I'm, I'm sure most of you have heard of this, this, this great um, sort of going out. I'm not going to go into this in too much detail except to say that you can see again all five of the personalities reflected um, in, in, this particular, in this particular policy. Um, you have the self-sufficient civilization. you have the leader of the developing world, China, investing in these, in its, in, in its neighbours in order to develop their, their markets and their economies. Um, you have the sovereign survivor. Ultimately, it's to support Chinese industry in the end and to, to uh, I guess, appease some of the, or, or manage some of the, some of the internal pressures that, that, that China has. Um, let me wind it up here. I think we've been going for a while. Um, and I want to bring it back to, um, I guess, I guess Australia. To um, say, and I hope that these five personalities—they're not—they're not perfect. Um, some people would say there's some other personalities that may come in. Um, China, the the trader, China, the business person. There may be other personalities there, but the intent has been to provide a little bit of a framework that we might be able to understand what's going on in China and some of the contradictions with a little bit more detail. But with the overall intent that, as Australia, I think it is so important that we live in our relationship and we understand China um, much better. Um, and with a mindset that not only can we teach China lots of things, but we can also learn uh, a bit um, from China. I was at a healthcare forum um, with, the, with the World Economic Forum, and I was told by a Chinese person, we were discussing the future of healthcare. How do you get the healthcare system into a preventative mindset? When you have drug companies and doctors who get paid when they get sick, how do you turn that all on its head and have a prevention thing? And then a Chinese colleague of mine said, did you know in ancient China how it all worked? In a village in ancient China, doctors would get paid by each villager when nobody was sick. And the moment when somebody became sick, payments Do we have lots of things that we can learn from China? The use of the older generation, um, the grandparents, um, to provide part of a solution in terms of Australia's um, healthcare crisis. The tremendous emphasis on education that Confucian uh, cultures uh, have, the general respect um, for the older population, uh, uh, savings mentality um, in terms of national so let's leave it there. Um, and to say this, to make this last point, I guess, um, when Chinese people come to Australia, at what point do they stop becoming Chinese and they start becoming Australian? Um, you know, and can we begin to use this tremendous resource that we have, that is being the Chinese people amongst us, be they old migrants or new migrants, and we begin to see them as part of our national endeavour and being, them being part of us and them helping us understand and take advantage of these great opportunities that we have uh, with our Chinese neighbors. Thank you.